I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. This is The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. I've owned books and books and been a bookseller for over 35 years. What you're about to hear are conversations about all things literary, with writers, readers, publishers, old friends, new friends, and anyone who might wander into our store with an interesting story to tell about their connection to books, reading, or writing. These will be informal, over-the-backyard-fence kind of conversations, the kind I and booksellers everywhere have each and every day. Candace Bushnell is the critically acclaimed international best-selling author of nine books, including Is There Still Sex in the City, which we're going to be talking about today. That's her newest. Sex in the City, Summer in the City, The Carrie Diaries, One-Fifth Avenue, Lipstick Jungle, Trading Up, Killing Monica, and Four Blondes. Sex in the City, published in 1996, was the basis for the HBO hit series and two subsequent blockbuster movies. Lipstick Jungle became a popular television series on NBC, as did The Carrie Diaries on The CW. Is There Still Sex in the City is currently in development as a TV series with Paramount. And what I, I, there, was a, there was a quote from The Guardian that I just loved, which I think captures so much about Candace. Candace caustically addresses the conditions of materialism, cramped urban life, and metrop uh, metropolitan speed, where fame and wealth are all around, but never in one's grasp. Bushnell is courageous in bringing this to the fore, and she's blessed with an Austin-like mastery in doing so. She cuts through the lies that women tell themselves about the surface equality of Western society. As such, she has much more in common with Edith Wharton, Dorothy Parker, and the early Bretty Stanellis. Candace, welcome to The Literary Life. Thank you. It's great to be here. Edith Wharton, Dorothy Parker, Jane Austen. Must be pretty heady to hear that. Well, it 
It is. It's it's great. And it's good to remember those things because, of course, one always remembers all the nasty things that people say. Well, but because that is part of being a writer. Well, I can mark my bookselling career almost by your publishing history in a lot of ways. I know. We opened our Miami Beach store, which was our second store. And I think your reading, and I forget which book it was for, was one of the first readings that we ever had there. And it was, people were literally hanging from the track lighting. It was kind of remarkable. Yes, it it really was. And interestingly, I wonder if it was for... I don't remember if it was for Sex in the City. It could have been for Sex in the City. It might have been. It was in the 80s, but or early or 90s. 90s. Early 90s. And- yeah, if it was in the 90s, then it definitely would have been for Sex in right. the City. But it was so exciting. Yes, it was because Miami Beach had a kind of it was coming, powerful place. Yes, and it was the new hot place to be. And I think Andre Bellage had opened right. a hotel. And Schrager also was, was just starting there. Was opening a hotel. I think it was the Raleigh, I believe. Yes, and so and and there were these super glamorous hotels that were in competition. And interestingly, this was the world before social media, right? And yet, we all knew about them, and it was you know it was very vibrant. Yeah, it was and, exciting. And and the thing that a lot of people don't really understand is that your book was a phenomenon way before the TV television show. I mean, Sex in the City was just, I think it put my kids through preschool at the time. They were young enough at that point. Oh, well, that's <laughs> the sales good. from that. But you also, I remember having a conversation with you back then and you really got it. I mean, so many people didn't quite understand what was happening with Miami Beach, but you understood that it was going to be a place because it was really at its kind of, it was kind of at a down point, but it was on its way up. It was on its way and up. And you yes. saw it that it was going to be coming up because you understood that New Yorkers were coming down. You understood mm-hmm. that the fashion industry was discovering it, right? Yes, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, in that time, in the '90s, you know, the internet was around, but it was it was a very creative time where not all these things have had reached the masses because the internet wasn't what it is today. But it was all of those these almost like underground cool things, independent bookstores, Miami, you know, HBO. Um, Fashion was something that at one time it was like you really had to be there, but then you had was, to, it was harder then to with find. The, it was harder right. to find, but then when the internet came along, it really exploded and right. made all of these things, I think, doubly popular. So, you know, this 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 brings me to the question of Sex in the City and what you've done through all of your books. You've com- you've been compared as I just did to these, you know, remarkable writers, Jane Austen, Edith Wharton, Dorothy Parker. Um they're all known as keen social observers of life. Um my question to you, starting from the very beginning is how do you gather those observations? And what do you think it's about you and your past and the way you were brought up that allows you to be so empathetic in the way that you gather those observations? 
Uh, well, first of all, that's very nice because I don't really know that I'm actually that empathetic in gathering observations. I think that I probably am not. But I always loved the social novel, the society novel. I'm fascinated by, well, I'm really fascinated by human beings. And it always seems like, you know, writing about society people is in a way the best way, best people to write about because, you know, they, they're insulated by success and money. And they're really an example of systems, human systems and human interactions and how we organize ourselves and status and all kinds of things that I find fascinating. So I've, you know, I've always, that's really always been my interest. And it started when I was a kid observing other kids and my sister. Where did you grow up? I, I grew up in a town called Glastonbury, and it was a, I guess it was wrote, a suburb, Connecticut. In Connecticut. And it was on the Connecticut River. There was lots of farmland. So it, in some ways, and there were families there, they'd been there for two or 300 years. And wow. farming the same land, the horses. I mean, so the past for me like 200 years ago was, it literally could be like yesterday for me because I was in this place where people had just been there for so long. And was New York the shining city for you? And New York, yes, New York. I always felt like, oh, I'm going to go to New York as a kid. So, and I was always observing people. Were you sneaking off to go? Did you go, when was your first sort of time that you were... Well, I first in New York for an extended period of time. Well, I first went to New York. I went to Rice University in Houston, Texas, and I think I was there for. And I just was kept thinking, I'm going to get out of here. I've got to get out of here and get to New York. You know, it was 1976, sure, and kids were not as sort of pampered or precious. I mean, your parents really couldn't be in touch with you the way they are now. And I just decided I am going to get to New York and become a writer. That's what I have to do now. So I met some people that lived in New York and I went to visit them. It's around, You know, it's funny. It's around the time, I think... Patty Smith moved to New York. Yes, right around that and, and you know, the city was broke. <clears throat> um, it was a really expensive place to live, but relatively. Were you in school at the time? Were you at NYU I then? was, no, I actually ran away from school. I went to acting school for six months. Wow. I went to HP Studio. I couldn't stand the sexism, I have to tell you. I mean, I almost, like, I would go to auditions. It was like everywhere you turned, some guy had his hand on, on his crotch. God. I'm not kidding. Well, we now see. I was see, like, I can't take this. I got to go work at a women's magazine. And we're now seeing what's happening, right? So you got out at the right time. Which, which but, women's magazine did you go work for? Well, first I worked for Ladies Home Journal. And... 
they interviewed, and it was hard to get a job because this was a this was the tail end kind of a, the baby boomers. So it was like every position was filled, and I know like young people today feel like I can't find a job, but in 1980, that's how people really felt like you could not find a job. So this job as an assistant, they interviewed a thousand people, a thousand young women for the job. I ended up getting the job and I swear to God, I got the job because you had to work for two people. One was this very pristine, tall, Upper East Side man. And the other one was this woman from the five towns. (laughs) She smoked Benson and Hedges 100s. And I did too. So when I was in her office, she was like, so why should I give you the job? I was like, I'm so so nervous. She was smoking. I lit up. And I was like, and then she was like, oh, we smoke the same brand of cigarettes. You're hired. I got the job. (laughs) That's fantastic. And my first task of every morning was sharpening pencils. (laughs) That is great. And, And, but you know what? I also dressed... I would wear crazy clothes because I I had a side gig modeling in punk fashion shows wow. because you would get free clothes. The clothes would be very strange. Like one thing that I had was a white plastic jumpsuit with black piping up the side and it had little Velcro things. And, you know, I'd wake up in the morning, I'd be like, I really can't afford these clothes. It's like I have to wear this white plastic jumpsuit <laughs> to work, and so you this know, is the early, and it's 1981, and it was a very yeah. exciting time there. I mean, it was a very rough was, time in New York City, but it had to have been a really exciting time to it, be there. It was really exciting. I mean, it was a city that it pulsed with possibility, and still before the internet, really. Yes, way before the internet, and. There were, everybody who moved there was moving because they felt like they didn't belong in their small town and they felt like they were kind of a misfit and they were creative, but they didn't know what to do with their creativity. It's not like today where, oh, you want to be a writer where you could go to, you could go to an MFA program. Like nobody did that. In so, fact, people laughed at it. It was like, you know, if you're a writer, you're a writer. You don't go to school. When did you know you were a writer? When did that happen? Well, I really decided when I was eight and I had an epiphany moment that was like, you're going to be a writer. This is what you're going to do. You're going to become a famous novelist. And and I think I was reading Little House on the Prairie at the time, which is like, okay. But I remember this moment. It really was this epiphany moment. I'm sure lots of people have them and they don't pay attention. But I did. I mean, I was, as a kid, I was somebody who, you know, I wasn't walking around like, you know, oh, are you my mother? I was walking around like, are you my destiny? You know, what's my destiny? So, Did you keep journals and things? I actually didn't, which was frustrating because everybody had all these theories about how you're supposed to be a writer. You're supposed to keep journals and this and that. And well, I you just, were only eight or nine, so. 
Don't uh, yeah, worry about I the mean, theories. I, c- I couldn't quite, <laughs> you know, and even then I've never been a journaler. And I think it's one of the things that like the, about memoir that makes me like, uh, I don't want to do it because it feels like it's writing journals. Right, right. But you have, but you tell stories so beautifully. So let, let's talk about the new book. So the new book is getting like amazing reviews. I was telling you before, I was telling you before that rarely do we see books end up on both the New York Times bestseller lists as every other bestseller list and the indie bestseller list. So it's, it's crossing that line between commercial and literary and people from all over are enjoying what it is you, you've presented in this. In fact, a review that I really enjoyed came from Pop Sugar, which said that Candace Bushnell is back doing what she knows best, chronicling the lives of women and how they find love. This time, she turns her lens on middle-aged men and women, and the result is pure magic. At turns wistful and sad, thoughtful and funny, is there still sex in the city? And I like this part, is even better than the original. <laughs> oh, well, that's very nice. Well, I'm so tell older. So us, tell us about the book. Uh, you know, for me, it's really, we're calling it autofiction and it's, it's autobiographical elements, a lot of autobiographical elements, um, and really in the moment elements, because big things happened while I was writing the book. For instance, my father died and my best friend took her life while I was writing the book. So... But it's in a fictionalized setting, and um, so it's a couple of things. I mean, for me, it was it's kind of a reportage of, you know, being in the head of somebody who is just g- going through, like, kind of one weird blow after another, like a lot of other middle-aged people who I found where... You know, there was death, divorce, moving, and I had those things, but then I had friends who also had, they, you know, there was a loss of income where they have to really readjust uh, their careers, and a lot of unexpected things can happen in middle age where you got to somehow develop a huge amount of resilience. Well, you coined a phrase called middle-aged madness. Yes. And so what that's, is that? And that's what happens when one is hit by what are literally the biggest stressors to the psyche, which are, again, you know, divorce, death, and moving, and, you know, could be loss of income. But these things really can affect you. So it's, it's, you know, there are some downs, but then it's also, you know, there's some ups of going a, a little crazy, for instance. Well, the idea of, the idea of cubbing, is it? Yes. Well, cubbing is, was one of the things that happened to me and, and my squad, I guess. Um, I was single and then all of a sudden I had a lot of girlfriends who became single. And when women become single, they go to where there are other single women. So they all kind of came out to what I call the village in the Hamptons. And one of the first things that happened was 
that all these young guys were coming around and were attracted to these 50-something women to the point where I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> I, I got to sit at dinner or at lunch with this like 28-year-old guy. I've got nothing to say to him. It's like, really? Because he's after... It's like, why is he interested in even sitting with us? But no, he loves these older women. And and uh, yeah, well, and I, you, I don't know what to say, but yes, it was well, really it's part surprising. Of, it's actually part of the fun of the book. Yes, And it, it wouldn't is. be a Candace Bushnell book if you didn't really delve into the heart of what a lot of these women were doing. So you talk, for instance, of the Mona Lisa treatment, right? Yes. Which was happening among middle-aged women too, right? Yes, it's one... It was, of- it was news to me. I mean, it was something I wasn't completely aware of, but... Why don't you explain what that is? Exactly? Well, there are all kinds of vaginal rejuvenation treatments. Right. And, you know, I think a society, we're not exactly sure what we think about these things. Or I'm I'm not sure because there's a part of me that's like, oh, leave it alone. It's the way nature intends it. But then there's another part of society that's like, no, keep using all your sex organs all the time. (laughs) So there are lots of things available to men. Apparently, there are like 77 different kinds of treatments for, you know, male sexual things, which happens, by the way, to men the same way it happens to women. Um, You know, there's just a lessening, whatever. Um... But there are a few things for women, and this is one of them. So it is a laser treatment for the inside of your vagina, and it can it can work really, really well. And some women who it worked really well for, it worked so well that they looked at their husbands and they were like, dude, I'm out of here while I'm still young enough. So they leave their marriages, and then they go, and they're with cubs. So they're with those guys. So they are with these younger guys. So, and this, I know it sounds strange, but it's a story that I promise you I've heard it at least 10 times. So, so the research you did was it's, you, 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 you phrased it before beautifully. It's, it's you plus, right? It's you plus doing research. It's your life. It's, it's, but it's also doing research about what other women who are in middle age are dealing with right now. Right. I mean, I always used to say, is it empirical research? I haven't used this word for so long, but it's been what, it's what I do where it, it really is, you know, it's, it's really through my eyes and it's, it's as much as I can gather. It's not you know, based on statistics, but I will look at statistics. And it's, it's really about stories that I hear again and again and again, that then I say, okay, this is a pattern and this is something interesting that's worth exploring because it's, this is not just happening to me. It's happening to like a lot of other women. And then once you bring these things up, you want I always hear even more stories. Yeah. And and I hear, you know, and the stories are fairly universal. 
Well, tell me about, you've been touring. So what have you been finding out there? How, what are people saying? What are your audiences well, saying? Well, I have, I really feel like it's really striking a note, which is great because it does feel like this is a new, and, you know, in a way it's like every passage of time now is unexplored because we live so differently than we did a hundred years ago. And however people live, what is the most comforting to them is when things are the same. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, if things are the same and you can count on, this is the way things have always been done. We know what's going to happen next. We know how to deal with older people. We know how that we behave in all these different situations. That's now gone. Right. basically for most of us because the truth is a hundred years ago there wasn't a large cohort of women in their 50s seeking new partners now there is well there's the baby boom period that you we're know, there's all the baby we're boom cycling period, and it's also technology right. and keeping it, people alive longer as well but it also technology allows us to live in a much more solitary way, right. just in the sense of if you look at how we gather food. Now me as a single person, I can go and I can cook myself something for just me to eat. 200 years ago, that was not possible. Oh, how interesting. That's true. You're right. Or you could order something just for you as well. I can and order something just for me <laughs> and have it be delivered. Um, and that they're just there's so many tiny little technical things that we take advantage that we take for granted that weren't true and explains much of these so, trends that we're seeing so with this posse you've created in the new book what do you hope readers will come away with after spending time with them well uh, first of all i hope that they'll laugh uh, because I do think that it is a very funny book. I mean, I think it's, you know, I hope they'll feel some emotion, really. And I also hope that it will make them think, because I do try to pick at a little bit our, you know, assumption about gender roles and, you know, what works for women being single or married. And one of the things that I learned in this book is that you know, some of the women who are on the shakiest ground are women who worked but largely gave up their career for a marriage and then ended up putting their financial well-being into the hands of a man who mortgages everything and loses his job and they're both left with really nothing. So... That's there's a lot of danger. It's a it's a minefield. Well, it's out just there. it's you know it's not that it's a minefield, but it's just that there's certain economic choices that are probably safer than others. Right, right. Well, you seem to be in a really happy way right now. You seem oh, to be in a really good mode. Uh, what's your life like now? Are you writing something new? Are you touring? Well, I'm working the TV on the, thing is I'm happening. Working on the TV portion of Is There Still Sex in the City? And 
And then I have a couple of other things that I'm going to work on and I'll do another book. I'm not exactly sure what that is. I also love the fact that you've been with Grove Atlantic from yes. the beginning. And yes, and I love you work being with, with Morgan and Morgan Entrican, one of the great publishers. Yes, he's a, an amazing publisher. And, you know, I always say, you know, there's so much insecurity being a writer, but then I always remind myself, you know what? Morgan thinks it's a great book. And if Morgan thinks it's a great book, he knows. <laughs> he does. He knows. He does. And he has credibility among all of us. So yes, when he, he's really when he tells amazing. us it's a great book, we, we know that he knows too. Candice, it would be wonderful if you could read just a little section so that listeners will get a sense of the tone and the feeling of Is There Still Sex in the City? Great. I'm going to read a little section from, I, I call this the, this is kind of the dating section. Uh, these are some of the different kinds of guys that I encountered and also my friends encountered, this same type of guy. And I call this one, the he's as old as your father guy. The reality of middle-aged dating in which guys your age want to be with women 10, 15, 20 years younger can cause some women to try to game the odds in their favor by playing the game. In other words, dating a man who is 10, 15, maybe even 25 years older, which would be fine. But given the fact that you're now middle-aged yourself, that means a man who's 70, 75, or maybe even 80, you wouldn't think that there would be a large contingent of men around that age who are out there dating. But when you think about demographics and how so many of the boomers are now in their later years, it makes sense that there's a crop of 60, 70, and even 80-something men out there acting like they're 35. I encountered one of these men at a party given by a married couple in their early 60s. There were lots of 50-something single women there like me, and two or three of these senior-age players or saps. These are older single men of means, meaning they have enough money to add it to their list of attributes and are often still employed in a lesser version of the high-powered career they once had. At some point during the party, I must have talked to one of these men because a few days later, Ron, the host of the party, contacted me to let me know that out of all of the 50-something single women who were there, a fellow named Arnold had chosen me to ask me out. Ron was very excited about this. I was not. Ron, however, was very impressed. He said that Arnold was a really big deal. And you had to really admire the guy because Arnold played Ivy League football and he was once an oil man and a newspaper magnet and all the Park Avenue hostesses were always inviting him to their parties. Still, he was sought after. I thought I remembered the guy, a tall, thick battle axe type who was definitely older. Too old for me, I decided. How old is he, I asked. 
Oh, he's just a little bit older than I am, Ron said. That would make him 68. The problem is that these guys often lie about their ages. They fudge, somehow forgetting about that truth-revealing device called the internet. Sure enough, when I googled him, Arnold turned out to be 78. And you'll just have to read more to find out what happens. It gets a lot worse. Thank you, Candace. Thank you. Great.